we're going to reprise a, a sermon series category that uh, we all did about three years ago, I think, last time this was done. And we'll be uh, using, uh, we'll be looking at the Psalms this summer. So various sermons based out of the Psalms. Um, the, the kind of the sub-theme is, is uh, uh, this idea of a duet between heaven and earth. God speaking to us in his word. The Psalms are inspired by God. They're the word of God to us. But the Psalms also give voice to, to human longings and, and uh, all kinds of emotions, the whole range of human emotions, right? Joy as well as lament. Uh, there's celebration. There's, there's sadness. There's, there's uh, wisdom in the Psalms. And there's these soul-penetrating questions that we come to as well. And so the Psalms have a lot to teach us. And uh, the Psalm that I've picked for us today is one of my favorite Psalms. It's Psalm uh, 73. I love this Psalm because uh, it's full of honest struggle. Uh, There's no platitudes in this Psalm. Um, And yet it finds its way eventually to a deep soul satisfaction. And that's what we all want, right? We, we want to experience satisfaction in life. You know, the fulfillment of our needs and our desires, the contentment and rest and joy and, and gratification that comes when our expectations are met, when the world is working the way that we think it ought to work. Every one of us is searching for what we hope will make us truly happy. And the big question of life is this, what can do that for us, right? What, what will truly, ultimately satisfy? You know, as kids, it may be that uh, you're focused on that pack of gum in the checkout uh, aisle, uh, you know, on the way out of the grocery store. If only I could have this, my life would be great, Mom. Uh, maybe it's the latest video game. You know, as teenagers, you might get a little bit more sophisticated. It's good grades or, or your athletic accomplishments or finding that relationship with a significant other. As adults, it, we may think in terms of a, a bigger house or children or a better job or, or just, you know, just peace and quiet when I come home in the evenings. You know, all of these things are good things. They're all gifts from God, but none of them. None of them have the capacity to satisfy our souls, ultimately, for more than just a brief time. We're still left wanting more. And so one of the most profound questions in life is simply this, what is the source of satisfaction? Psalm 73 was written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was a a good man. He was a worship director in ancient Israel. He founded one of the ancient choirs that led the people in worship. He wrote 12 of 150 psalms. I don't know if you knew that. 12 psalms, the most that anybody wrote outside of David. And Asaph, as we learn in this psalm in particular, worked hard to live a life pleasing to God. But for all of his religion... For all of his moral goodness, he was deeply disappointed with life until he found the source of satisfaction. And so uh, let's uh, read from Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph, and at the same time, this is the Word of God. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's on page 469 in your pew Bibles, Psalm 73. 
Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. (laughs) Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You'll destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for people that have gone before us that you have inspired, Lord. This is Asaph's experience, but it is your word, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you don't leave us to figure out these big questions in life on our own. Lord, some of us may be in a very similar place that Asaph found himself in when he was experiencing these things that he writes about. Father, others of us may be celebrating life. Things may be going well, but Lord, all of us are searching for meaning and purpose and satisfaction. What's it all for? What makes sense of everything? So Lord, give us wisdom today from your word. Teach us, shape us, uh, speak to us. Wherever we're at on our journey of life and our journey of faith, Lord, would we hear from you today? And would we respond and follow whatever that next step may be? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, this is a wisdom psalm. There's different categories of psalms, uh, and uh, this one would be categorized as wisdom. It's teaching us something about life, what we need to know about life. And the first thing that Asaph teaches us in this psalm is that God is good, and yet we struggle to believe it sometimes. Verse 1 teaches us very simply that God is good to those who are pure in heart. And this is the main point of the psalm. This is what this wisdom psalm is, is intending to teach us. God is good to those who are pure in heart. And this implies to me two important questions. First, what does it mean for God to be good to us? And second, who are the pure in heart? What does pure in heart look like? How does one be pure in heart? And so Asaph thinks he knows the answer to both of those questions. Um, It becomes clear as we learn more of his struggle throughout the psalm that he thinks, get this, he thinks that for God to be good to us means that we'll prosper, that things will go well for us, that we won't have difficulties, we'll live a comfortable life. And if we're honest, isn't that what we assume as well? I mean, that's why, that's why uh, we get confused and disappointed and, and even angry with God when things are hard in our lives, right? God, if you're good, why is this happening to me or to my loved one? Have you ever asked that before in your heart or, or to God? I think all of us are there at various points in our lives. And so Asaph thinks God's goodness will lead to comfort and prosperity. And then second, he thinks he's pure in heart, right? We see later in the psalm and down in verse 13 in his bitter complaint that he says, quote, I have kept my heart pure, right? I'm innocent of wrongdoing. Asaph is a good guy. He's a moral, upright, responsible, religious person. But he's wrong on both counts, And it's his misunderstanding of these two issues that leads to his struggle. So look at verses 2 and 3. God is good to Israel, surely, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. He had almost lost his faith. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so, despite the theology that Asaph knows in his head, which is a good thing, that theology doesn't match up to his perception of how the world works. And that led to a crisis of faith. And I'm sure at some level that Asaph was, was morally offended by the wicked and the arrogant. But, but it's even more than that. Like Asaph, at the end of the day, Asaph envies them for their prosperity, for their comfort. He believes that he deserves what they have because he's religious. He's morally upstanding. He follows the rules, and they don't. His struggle boils down to the fact that sometimes we think our faith doesn't seem to work. It's, like it's not working. This, this religion thing isn't working out the way it should. Asaph compares his life to the carefree lives of, of what he calls the arrogant wicked. Verse 4, they don't seem to have any struggles. 
Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're, they're probably wealthier. Uh, this is why he's, he's envying them, and so they have access to good nutrition, which probably wasn't always the case back in that day. Verse 5, they don't have troubles like everyone else in his perception. Verse 10, other people seem to respect and honor them. Verse 12, they're always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Asaph looks at these people, and he's jealous that their health and their wealth and their security and comfort and respect that others seem to give them uh, is something that he doesn't have. They have all of that, and here's the kicker. They don't deserve it, right? Because they're also, he says, verse 6, proud and violent, full of sin, verse 7, oppressive, verse 8. They blaspheme God, verse 9, and they reject God's ways in verse 11. And so Asaph wonders, why do I even bother? And what's the point of all of this? Look, look, at, uh, look at verse 13. He says, surely in vain, <laughs> surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. In other words, what's the point? Why do I bother doing the right things, trying to honor God, if it doesn't make any difference? In fact, it might even make my life a little bit harder. You know, several years ago, I was discipling a young man in the church I was serving at the time in Colorado, and this is just a great guy, sharp guy, hard worker. He was a, your classic entrepreneur. He was in his early 30s at the time, and he was already uh, running a real estate business with several agents under him. He was running an insurance agency with several agents under him, and in his free time, he owned a restaurant. And, uh, you know, still in his early 30s, he was just, just a hard charger. As you can imagine, he worked a ton of hours. Uh, he worked hard. He faithfully attended church. He was committed. At one point, I didn't ask him this, but at one point, he just volunteered the information that he he ties at least 10% on everything that he makes. But as he was going through a hard time with a couple of his businesses, it became clear that he was angry at God um, because he couldn't understand why God was treating him the way that he was treating him at that particular time in his life, the, the, these hard times. And he said this to me. This was Oh, this is probably 13, 14 years ago, and it stuck with me because of how he said it. it, just, it it's just something that has stuck in my mind. He said, I would never treat my employees who were working so hard to follow my directions the way God is treating me. Wow. Like, I appreciate his honesty. And, and, and at the end of the day, truth be told, I think if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, we think that. We just may not have the guts to say it like he did. I would never treat my employees who are trying to do their best for me the way God is treating me. And so he's frustrated. Think of a single person. You know, they're, they're careful to honor God's will with, with his or her sexuality. They hold out for a spouse that loves God. But as the years go by, this person maybe never gets married hasn't been married yet, and as he or she looks around to, to the other people that they know the kind of lifestyle they lived when they were younger, and yet now it seems like they're happily married, they've got nice families, things seem to be going well for them. It's tempting to wonder, isn't it? What good does it all, does it all uh, really do if God isn't providing the things that I want? 
when I'm trying to be faithful to him. Or maybe you're wondering why God would allow you to struggle with health issues or to to have kids who struggle with emotional issues. Whatever the hardship, whatever the unmet expectation is in your life, you wonder why God is allowing this to happen to you and other people don't seem to have to deal with it. And those people, if they're immoral people, or if they reject God, it twists the knife even more. Why them and not me? And so Asaph says, surely in vain I was following God. Surely in vain I was seeking to obey God. And when he says that, he reveals his misunderstanding of what it means to be pure in heart. He is essentially admitted to being a legalist at heart. Legalists believe that if they follow God's rules, then God owes it to them to bless them. And surely someone who doesn't follow God's rules, surely they shouldn't receive his blessing. He thinks he's pure in heart, but like all legalists, he has ulterior motives. You see, he ultimately is trying to use God for what he really wants, which is what the wicked actually have. Why are you here? What is it that you expect your faith to get you? If it's ultimately what God can give you rather than God himself, you're approaching life the way Asaph did before he understood. He came to this understanding of what life was all about. God is good, but we struggle to believe it because sometimes our faith doesn't seem to work until we learn that God is our greatest good. God himself is our greatest good. At some point, while Asaph is still struggling to make sense of all this, he's in the sanctuary, as was his habit, to be with the people of God in worship. He's probably a worship leader through all of this time. He's worshiping with God's people, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, something finally clicks. And, and I think, just to pause here, that's a testimony to us about the importance of ongoing, consistent corporate worship, right? As, it's as we put ourselves into God's presence with God's people, under God's word, that God will often at some point show up in our lives and, and make sense of things for us. And so if we extract ourselves out of that rhythm because we're frustrated, we're really cutting ourselves off from this opportunity to meet God, to hear from God. Well, Asaph's answer is a combination of two things. Asaph comes to the point where he has a new understanding and a new experience. A new understanding and a new experience. His new understanding was that the wicked don't actually prosper, ultimately. He realized, it says in verse 17, what their final destiny actually is. Verse 18, they're walking on slippery ground. They could fall at any time. In fact, verse 19, they are destroyed in a moment if they stay on the path they're following, either in this life or the life to come. Jesus says in this life, uh, if, if you hear his words and don't put them to practice, you're like what? A person who builds their house on the sand. And at some point, inevitably, the storms of life will come and, and, and the bottom will drop out. And so, you know, at some point, uh, it's going to come due. And, and ultimately, it will come due. 
And so in light of that eternity, a few relative years of comfort are a foolish trade that no one should envy. But even more than this new understanding, Asaph had a new, Asaph had a new experience that helped him realize that even now in this life, God is our greatest good. In verse 22, he realizes that despite his religion, despite his moral achievements, he was nevertheless, in his words, senseless and ignorant. He says, I was like a brute beast before you, God. You know, he he came to this point where he recognized, I may have a different approach to life than the wicked, but I'm living for the same things that the wicked are living for. I'm just trying to get there differently. They were ignoring God to get what they wanted. Asaph was using God to try to get those same things. And this recognition, this this confession of his own sin and ignorance opens Asaph up, perhaps for the first time, to, to be open to God's grace. Despite his sin, he can affirm in the next verse, verses 23 and 24, he says, this is amazing, yet I'm always with you. Because, God, you hold me by my right hand. I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you'll take me into glory. Even though I struggle in my heart in bitterness towards you, you'll take me to glory. Right? D- despite struggling with his own sins, different in kind but not in substance from the wicked, Asaph knew God was with him. He had an eternity of blessing in front of him. He didn't earn it. God simply gave it to him. And that's grace. That's only possible, friends, because there's one who would come. Indeed, one who has come to stand in our place. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The way God is with us is in Jesus. And none of us is truly pure in heart. But Jesus is. And and Jesus came to take our place, to stand in our place, to pay for our sin. And as a result of that, God gives us Jesus' righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone. The way that we can be pure in heart is not to, to clean up our own hearts, but to be identified with the one who is pure in heart. The only way that we can experience this blessing of God, for for God to be for us, is to find our connection to him, our relationship to him in Christ. And it's when Asaph experienced God's presence and God's grace that God, I think, became more than just a concept for him more than just an enforcer of a moral code, more than a dispenser of gifts. God became Asaph's greatest satisfaction. He eventually, eventually learned to say, verse 25, (laughs) this is beautiful, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. This is the man who was envious of things that other people had, eventually comes to a place, I don't need any of that stuff if I have you. 
Nothing on earth, none of God's good gifts that he previously envied others for having could satisfy his heart. Only God could. That's, that's kind of the universal message of the Bible. Uh, that's what David meant, for example, in Psalm 16 when he said, I say to the Lord, you are my God. I have no good apart from you. God's gifts of relationships in our lives, of health and any wealth that we may have, any prosperity, these are all good, but none of these things, none of them can ultimately satisfy. God does. And so we thank him for those gifts when we have them, when we experience them, when he gives them to us. We can even ask him for them when we need them, but it would be idolatry to, to, to long for, to elevate those gifts above the giver himself. John Piper's most memorable line, probably what his whole ministry has been characterized by, single line, would make Asaph proud. Piper is famous for saying, God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. That's what the Christian life is about. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. A couple chapters later, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth, value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Asaph learned that the greatest good is God himself. And this side of the cross, we only know God through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus summarized what eternal life is all about on his last night with his disciples before his arrest. In John 17, he says, now this is eternal life. Here it is. This is what eternal life is all about. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This certainly includes knowing about God. Getting our theology right is foundational, but it's a lot more than that. This is actually knowing God. Feeling His glory, sensing His love, experiencing His presence with you. Asaph knew the theological truth that God is good to those who are pure in heart. He didn't experience it until that day in the temple when things clicked. And that made all the difference in the world. Friends, when God is the source of your satisfaction, you can be satisfied when you don't have the stuff that everyone else around you is chasing. When God is the source of your satisfaction, you continue to delight in God even when your circumstances are hard. If God is our greatest good, then God can work all things together for the good of those who love him if they bring us more of God, if they connect us to more of God. Asaph said in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. Like I'm facing potentially a health issue, a health crisis, perhaps even death. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I think what Asaph is getting at that being healed of a sickness can be good because because it shows us God's grace and power and mercy. Ultimately, we will be healed 
right? As we're resurrected with Christ on the final day, all things wrong with the world will be made right. That's what it means for God to receive us in glory, verse 24. But friends, hear this. Not being healed can also be good if, if it deepens our experience of God in a way that we wouldn't have experienced if we were healthy. Do you believe that? That God can use all things, even sometimes especially the hard things, to bring us to the point where we're open to him, where we experience him, where we know we're dependent on him. That's what Paul was talking about, I think, when he talked about his thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what this was. It was a physical ailment or something else, but whatever it was, Paul didn't like it, and he prayed to God on three occasions, God, take this away from me. It's uncomfortable. And God said no. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, that's what it's all about, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. All of those are evil. None of them are good in and of themselves, except when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm experiencing that, I need God. I experience God in a way that I wouldn't otherwise. Since God is an all-satisfying treasure, then he is able to turn anything in our life, any circumstance in our life, ultimately for good if it brings us closer to God. So when I'm disappointed or despondent or bitter, it may be that at that moment there's something I'm longing for more than God and I'm not getting it. And if that's the case, my my disappointment can be the prod that God might use to, to help me to seek him the way Asaph did. Asaph summarizes the whole psalm in the final verse, verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. It's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that it may tell of all your works. Our satisfaction in God necessarily, it just dynamically leads to mission, right? We can't help but tell our mission is to invite others to find their satisfaction in God in ways that we're learning to find our satisfaction in God. Asaph teaches us through his own experience that God is the ultimate source of satisfaction, Only this experience of God through faith in Christ will keep us from becoming disillusioned and bitter in difficult circumstances when it seems like others have better circumstances than us. Only knowing that we belong, as Steve reminded us at the beginning of the sermon, as we belong body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, only then will we have the comfort that we need in this life, assure us of eternal life, And only that will make us wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even when we're honest with ourselves and can say 
like Asaph said, that uh, we are ignorant and foolish before you. We're like brute beasts sometimes. We don't get it. Lord, we want stuff that isn't for our ultimate good and what you offer us, we, we spurn away and try to fulfill in other ways. Nevertheless, Lord, you don't leave us there. You demonstrated your love for us, uh, Father, in that while we were still sinners, you sent your Son. Jesus, you demonstrated your love for us in that even though you were equal to God in glory, you didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped, but you emptied yourself. You took the form of a servant, being made in our likeness. You were obedient even to the point of death on a cross so that we could experience you, so that we would learn what it means to be satisfied in you. Praise you, Jesus, that you didn't stay in the grave, but you were raised from the dead. You were exalted. You're seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And when you return in glory, we will be revealed in glory with you. But between this day and that, help us to have our hearts tuned to find their praise in you, to have our hearts satisfied by nothing less than the God of the universe. And Lord, would that be an anchor to our soul? Would it give us sustainability when life is hard? Would it give us joy despite our circumstances? And Lord, would it be the basis of us being a blessing to others who are looking for satisfaction themselves? Use us, Lord, for your glory, for our good, for the world's good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.